Um, after a bit of a roundabout with some starts and stops, we're finally ready to return to and finish the series that we had begun called Be the Church. Uh, it's been a few weeks since we were there, so let me just refresh your mind of what we were doing. We were in a series called Be the Church because we were trying to ask the question, what does it look like to not just go to church, but to actually be the church? Right? And so in these next two weeks, we want to return to that series and finish it off. And, and again, remind ourselves, what would it look like to not just go to church, but to be the church? Right? Because church today in modern usage has come to mean a building that you go to or an event or a service that you attend. Right? It's a place you go or a thing you do. We say it all the time. I'll meet you at the church. I'm headed over to the church. I'll see you at church. What time is church? And by all of that, we mean very innocent, perhaps simple things, but the scriptures, I want you to hear, never uses the word that way. There's not one reference in the Old Testament or New, not a single verse that uses the word church the way that we do. There's never a reference to church in the scriptures as a place to go or an event to attend or a service to attend or a thing to do. Church, rather, in the scriptures has always referred to a people, to a people, right? And we've said that many times over. You can go to church all the time and find that in the end, you were never really a part of the church. You were never the church, though you attended church. And so we want to fight against that reality that often pervades church culture and ask, what is it about this people that the scriptures say the church is? Who are these people? What's their identity? And over these last 13 weeks or so, as we've been in this series, that's the question that we've been trying to address and answer. What is the identity of this people that the scriptures call the church? Who are Jesus' people? And each week we've been trying to build on our understanding of the identity of the church, of us who are gathered. So we began by looking at some of the metaphors that the scriptures use in addressing the church. We said that the scriptures call the church Jesus' bride and body and building and brothers. So if you remember that, that we said that the scriptures say that this people gathered in small communities like this one and across the globe are Jesus' bride that he loves the church and gave his life for the church and, and came down from heaven to die for the church that he might pursue her and have her to be his own. We, we said it's like a building where you and I are individual living stones being piled on top of one another, built together with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, a body where Jesus is the head and we are individual parts, each of us playing our part and together forming a whole called the body of Christ. Or brothers, we consider the great rich metaphor of adoption in the scriptures, something that we've been letting ourselves think through over this season, where God is our father and we were enemies of God at enmity with God, separated from God, and yet God in great love for us pursued us, and Jesus, like an older brother chasing his prodigal younger brother, comes to the earth and dies in our place for our sins so that we who were enemies might be adopted into the family of God. God is our father, Jesus our older brother, and now we, brothers and sisters with one another. And we said, this is what the people of God called the church is. This is what the church is. And then each week we kept building on that identity of what the church is. We said that the church is believers. So it's not attenders. 
There's, there's plenty who attend church, but the true church within the visible church are those who believe, who've repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ and, and trusted him to be their righteousness and trusted him to be what makes them acceptable to God. And we said it's not just belief, as though it's a mental box that we check, some kind of mental ascent. It's, it's hearing and doing. So we said the church is hearers and doers. That we're not just hearing God's word and so deceiving ourselves. We're not just puffing ourselves up with more and more knowledge. Our goal is not more and more Bible studies. Our goal is obedience, because we want to not just hear what the word says, but do what it says, hearers and doers, that hopefully those who are a part of Jesus' body are actually growing in holiness and sanctification, looking less and less like themselves and more and more like Jesus who saved them. And each week we kept building. We talked about the church's worshipers, that why have we gathered here on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to hear a good sermon, to be entertained by some good songs, to get a good feeling, no, we said God has moved us in the rhythms and patterns of worship that he began with his people long ago. He's brought us into covenant and week after week, we're having wedding vows renewed when we come to church. Our relationship with the Lord is being renewed. Our vows are being reset, both him to us and us to him. And we're being renewed in covenant relationship as we gather for worship. We talked about servants and missionaries and stewards and said God has called us and sent us and given to us that we might be generous to others. We talked about unity, that Jesus' church is not united because you and I are going to get after unity, but that Jesus gave his blood for our unity. We're family. We don't have to act like brothers and sisters. We act like brothers and sisters because we are brothers and sisters, right? We maintain the unity that Jesus died to give us. The last time we were in this series, we said also the church as leaders. And so we said, from among us, the family of God, brothers and sisters, God will call some to serve the church in unique ways as leaders. And we looked at 1 Timothy 3, and we looked at the two biblical offices of elders and deacons. Okay, in these last two weeks, we want to finish up the series. And this week, what we want to ask is, how do we relate to these leaders that God has called and given to the church? How do we, the family of God, relate to those that God has put in charge of these different local families? How do the members relate to its leaders or to its pastors? I can tell you this has been a very weird week of preparation for me because basically I'm saying, this is what I want you to treat me like, right? This is how you're to see me. This is how you're to relate to me. But I, I want you to hear, as I've thought through that, it is good for you to hear this. But at the same time, I'm really eager for the day when we will have a team of leaders, a plurality of elders. And so I'm longing to hear these words to my own heart so that one day I can relate to those God has called over authority over my life and relate to them in that same kind of way. All right, so today we want to consider what do the scriptures have to say in regards to how we relate to those whom God has called in leadership in the church, particularly to God, whom God has called as pastors over our church. Okay, now as we do that, right off the bat, we've already run into sort of a problem. And that is that I just, in 2011, in Philadelphia, living in America, had the audacity to say that God has put in your life, 
people who are in authority over you. Or, or very contextually to our specific case, I had the audacity to say, I am in authority over you. All right, that stings a little bit more, right? When we begin to understand this generically, it's one thing. When we begin to take it home, it's, it's, it's a very hard thought for us to receive. And that's because we honestly hate the word authority. We hate that word in any sphere, let alone in the church sphere, right? We resist and recoil at the idea that anyone would be in charge over us or much less an inch above us in any sphere, right? We, in our culture, in our day, if you live in America, one of the highest virtues that we hold on to is I do what I want when I want and ain't no one going to tell me otherwise, right? I live my life my way. And the scriptures would say, that's because you're foolish, and the scriptures would say God in his wisdom has placed authority in every sphere and does so for your good. And the scriptures would say that's because God himself is the great authority above all authorities. So we want to start there. Whatever sphere we want to talk about an authority in that sphere, we want to first say that God is the great and authority, great authoritative king above all kings. That on the earth there is no sphere, no place, not an inch of terrain where the authority and rule and reign of God does not extend. There, there's not an ounce of the political world with all the kings and all the governments and all the rulers and all the presidents and all the powers that do not ultimately receive their authority from God who is king above all the kings and president over presidents and power over all powers. There's not a, an inch in the academic world with professors and understanding and, and learning. There's not an inch in the business world with markets and CEOs and companies. There's not an inch in any part of any corner of the world where God's rule and reign does not rest. God is authority over all things. And in his wisdom and in his grace, God has placed under him men and women in places of authority as well, to rule under his authority. So in the world of government, God, the scriptures tell us, has placed every king and every president and every congressman and every politician in his office. God did it. Hear that. The scriptures do not put forth anarchy as the best way, but rather the scriptures say that God has put men in the places that they are. Are governments perfect? No. Is our hope in governments? No. But every ruler who ever sits on any throne or any seat has been put there by God under his authority. And the scriptures say they are to wield that authority for the good of those whom God has entrusted under and to their care. Is authority a good thing? It is. And often you'll find even in your own heart that when you're living right, authority is a good thing. It's when you're living wrong that you find that you hate authority, right? So for example, if you see police sirens, if you're living right, that is a good sound. If you're in trouble, if you're in danger, if you're being attacked, those sounds will be the most comforting things you've ever heard, right? Because that authority has been put in place to help. But now if you've blown a red light, or if you're going 75 in a 45, now those same sounds 
are the most dreadful thing that's ever come over your ears. And you want to run as fast and far away as you can. The scriptures will say authority, especially godly, good authority, is good for your heart and soul. It's in his grace that he gives governments. Right? So if we moved out of the realm of, of countries and nations under the authority, we would say even down to the home. God has placed authority. Parents are certainly put in a place of authority over their children. And the weirdest thing we would do in our culture is somehow abdicate that authority. We somehow think that to be progressive and modern is to say, I'm not going to tell my children what to do. I'll let them find their own way. That's the dumbest thing anyone could say, right? Because everyone else in the world is telling your children what to think and what to believe. The only people not doing it are you because you don't want to be an authority over their life. Well, the scriptures say you are a grace given to them to be an authority over them. And even within the home, God has placed dad uniquely in a position of leadership, to bear primary leadership in the home. And again, in 2011, we would recoil at that thought. But the scriptures say that God has called dads to bear primary leadership in their home, to, to lead the spiritual shape of their homes. How do they do that? Sitting on a throne with a scepter and a, and a crown atop their head? No. They do it like Jesus. At least that's their call. Jesus, who was sitting atop a throne with a crown on his head and a scepter, used his authority to bend down low and wash the feet of the same ones that he was called to lead. He served even unto death the ones that were under his authority. And so the scriptures will call dads to lead their homes in that way, that you are leading by bending low and giving your life and sacrificing even unto death. You come in last place all the time for the sake of those that God has entrusted into your care. And if that is the way that it is, how would the scriptures call those whom are under his care to respond, but to receive that leadership and nurture that leadership and encourage that leadership? It's not this power play, it's this beautiful dance that you see even within the Trinity as the Father is head and the Son joyfully, gladly submits to the lead of the Father and there's no power play and there's no malice and there's no backbiting, it's just this glorious relationship where the Father leads and the Son submits in joy to the lead of the Father. It's that way in every realm. And if it's that way in the realm of countries and nations with governments, and it's that way in the home with parents and with dad, it is that way also in Jesus' church. That Jesus has also said that in his church, there will be some that Jesus calls to authority. He will raise up pastors to be an authority in the life of Jesus' church. And I want you to know at every level and in every sphere, our tendency, our bent, our proclivity is to sort of go against, sort of buck against the authority that God has placed over us. When we're children right from day one, we know that we rebel against parents. Why do we do that? Right? I want to give you two reasons why we do that. One is because we are sinful. Right? Right? <laughs> In this way, we look a lot like 
our dad, Adam, and our mom, Eve, in the garden, who when they were placed in this garden and told to enjoy anything and everything their hearts could desire, one command, don't eat that tree. And what's the first thing they do? Forget God, I will do this my way. And that first act is called rebellion and called treason against the authority that God had placed over them. And that sin has been hardwired into the DNA of every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve. And so when a child rebels against their parents, it's the same spirit of the garden. Forget God, I will do this my way. Forget mom and dad, I will do this my way. It's the same spirit within citizens who cannot obey the laws of the land and revolt against their government. It's the same spirit even within the church when we will not submit to the leaders that God has placed over us. And so part of this is because we are sinful to the core. But part of it, on the other hand, is because we have been sinned against to the core. Right? We're skeptical of authority because often those whom God has placed in authority has wielded that authority with great sin. Rather than loving and serving the ones that God had placed under their care, men and women have taken that authority and used it to abuse or abdicate the very people that God had called them to love and serve. So you tell me, you just read today's newspapers, there is country after country in upheaval because there are bad governments. You tell me. I'm preaching this sermon in a month where Philly.com just this month released a string of reports about Catholic clergy who are being tried in our city for case after case of sexual, sexual abuse. Men who were given authority in Jesus' church to use that authority to love and care for and serve like Jesus those that were under their care, but rather wielded that authority to abuse the very ones that they were called to defend and protect. You tell me. Many of you know that you suffered under the authority of wicked dads who rather than using the authority that God had given them, used their authority for their own advantage at your expense. Some of us have struggled with abuse. Some of us know deeply the pain of misused authority. And so I get that. I really do. I get why we would be skeptical of and, and hesitant to submit to any realm of authority because we ourselves have been hurt and burned by them. Are there bad governments? Yes. And are there bad leaders and pastors? Yes. And are there bad dads? Yes. The one thing I would put forth to you, though, is that the answer to that is not to eliminate authority, but rather to redeem it, right? The right response is not to exterminate all dads or to get rid of all leaders or governments or pastors, but to do it rightly. Like if I gave you a silly example, we know if we live in Philadelphia, you know that the Eagles defense doesn't work, right? I've lived here long enough, heard enough sports radio to know that everyone is in agreement. The Seven Mile Road Turkey Bowl team could take on the Eagles defense. All right, so what's the response? Do you get rid of the defense forever? Some would say that's probably what Andy Reid's movements recently has been doing. Just find a way to get Vic on the field for all 60 minutes. 
But no, that's not what you do. You find the right personnel and you get the right teammates and you get the right coaches. You come up with the right schemes. You do this right. You redeem it. You make it right so that the game can be played as it was meant to be played. Do we get rid of all authority? No, we redeem it. So our vision here at Seven Mile Road is not, all right, let's just let dads be dads because that's the way the city, the culture, the world is. Our vision is we're going to call our men to be godly dads. Every time we talk on this, we're going to tell them, you bear primary responsibility for the condition of your home. If your home is spiritually in shambles, God has the first conversation with you. And if you abdicate on that, we will be in your face to tell you and call you out on it. Because we're not getting rid of it. We're longing to redeem it. What a wonder and a witness it would be to our city if there was a community of godly men who didn't leave their families and didn't abuse their families, not abdication nor abuse, but used God-given authority to lovingly give their lives and serve and sacrifice as Jesus did. In the same way, what a witness and wonder it would be to our world if there was godly leadership in Jesus' church, even here at Seven Mile Road, and rather than men who use their authority to abdicate or abuse, they were doing this right. If that is the case that it would be, then we want to ask, then how would we respond? How would we as a church receive and respond to the leaders that Jesus has placed in authority over us? With a little bit of time that we have left, here's what I want to do. I want to show you two wrong ways and then hopefully a third and right way. Two commonly used, employed, but wrong ways to treat pastors. And then hopefully a third right and biblical way. Okay? First, on one end of the spectrum, one wrong way to treat those that God has called in authority over you to treat pastors is to treat them like celebrities. All right? One of the, the ways that we can drift is to take those that God has put in leadership over the church and to treat them like celebrities. Let me show you a passage from 1 Corinthians, and then I'll say more. 1 Corinthians 1, I think it's 9.52 in your black Bibles. <coughs> I'm going to read for us verses 10 to 13. Paul is writing to this baby church plant in Corinth, and this is what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Here's what's happening. You're in this church plant called Corinth, a baby church that Paul himself has planted. And there's this weird phenomenon that's beginning to happen. You've got these factions and fractions and teams and divisions in the church. And the root behind this is that different people are being wooed and wowed by different personalities. And so rather than being identified with Jesus, the church is beginning to sort of split up and go, well, I'm with Paul. Well, I follow Cephas. Well, I follow Apollos. And so on, these teams begin to 
emerge. Each one is drawn to some kind of celebrity figure, and rather than being identified on Jesus' team, they're now breaking off following different cult-like personalities. Right? It's, it's the weirdest thing. Rather than seeing that these are servants given by God, each one is now putting a flag. Rather than Jesus' name on it, the flag has Apollos or Paul or Cephas. I'm of pastor so-and-so. I'm of pastor so-and-so. And, and suddenly the, the church is beginning to follow men rather than together following Jesus. It's a weird thing except that we can do the same exact thing. Thing. I remember I was talking with Binu and I was telling him about a, a mutual friend of ours and, and Binu didn't know him well and so I wanted to impress on him that this guy was a good guy, a real believer and so I said, yeah, he's totally a Christian. I mean, he loves John Piper and everything and I didn't even get it and Binu starts laughing and I'm like, what? And he's like, did you just say that he's a good Christian because he loves John Piper? Some of you don't even know who Piper is. That's fine. But I began to think about it. How weird is that? that I wanted to impress that this guy was a good guy, and I didn't talk about his love for Jesus, his obedience to the word, his following God. I said, he's on the right team. He's got the right flag, my flag, John Piper. We can do that same sort of thing. I'm of, and you can name the celebrity pastor. Or I'm of, and, and you can name your pastor. And, and the local church can start acting that same way rather than being a team united around the person and work of Jesus we would actually rally around the giftings or the personality or the person and work of so-and-so. In Acts 14, there's this scene where Paul and Barnabas come into this city called Lystra and they perform these great deeds and the men of that city are just wowed. And so they literally start screaming, the gods have come among us in human form. And Paul and Barnabas, it says, run into the streets and they sort of rip their clothes and they go, what are you doing? We're men of the same nature as you. We've come to proclaim God who is of a different nature. And that's the right way. The scriptures would say that pastors are not celebrities who are on a higher pedestal to be worshipped or looked at or adored. Right? They, these are mere men who have been saved by the same grace you have been saved by and adopted into the same family by the same hero to serve the same God that you have been adopted to serve. Jesus would say in the scriptures that, that we're not to treat our pastors like celebrities, right? We're not to sort of put them on a pedestal, see them floating around with a special spot and special whatever, that's not what the scriptures are calling us to. Some of you have grown up in traditions where you couldn't even approach God yourself because your pastor or your priest was the conduit by which you came to God. Think through that. We've even set up men, fallen men like us, and said, you get me to God because I could not go to God alone. And the scriptures would have much to say to all of that. For one, the scriptures would say that we have one mediator between God and man. He is the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one holy man who gets us to God, and that is the God-man, Jesus. There's only one hero, one celebrity, one to whom every eye should look, and that is the Lord Jesus. Only Jesus is to be worshipped. Only Jesus is the hero of this book. Only Jesus has done the work that could get us to God. 
And so while pastors are certainly called, don't hear me diminish this, certainly called to godly character, we preach through 1 Timothy 3, to be above reproach, to have lives that are worthy of imitation, they are at the same time sinful men whom we do not worship. It's amazing to me that any pastor would act like they had arrived over their people when Paul, the great pastor and planter, is the one who at the end of his life, after he had served Jesus and planted churches, said, I am the chief of the sinners. And that kind of understanding, you would hope, would fill the heart of every man who's called to serve Jesus as pastor. And so on the one hand, here's what I want us to warn against. We don't treat our pastors like celebrities. At the same hand, at the same time, I don't want us to swing all the way to the other extreme that says, so we treat our pastors with contempt, right? Because the, the human tendency is this, and at least my experience has taught me this. We either set them up like gods or we throw them down like garbage, and that's sort of the two extremes. And in Paul's life, he's been in both places. He's been treated like a celebrity one minute and treated with contempt the next. Treated like a god one moment and treated like garbage the next. And I'm not making that word up. In 1 Corinthians 4.13, you don't have to turn there. He'll literally say to the Corinthians, as I've been reading this this week and just preparing, I've been stunned by how much ink Paul spends and how much time he spends and, and how many chapters he devotes throughout the New Testament to just defending his ministry among the very people that he planted and pastored. So many chapters of the New Testament are given to Paul defending himself to the very people that he brought to faith, defending himself among the very churches that he helped start constantly over and over again fighting off different accusations that are brought his way fighting off disrespect fighting off contempt and pleading with them to see him as his right and due in the lord all the time he's speaking of the authority that he has not to put himself on a pedestal but so that they might see him for who he really is in first corinthians 4 he's going to say to these corinthians listen i get it you guys are great and i am low this pastor will actually say to them, listen, I know you've become all things, kings and riches, and I and we, the pastors, have become the scum of the earth. That's what he says. The refuse of all things, literally garbage. I get it. And here's this pastor pleading with the people that he pastors and planted, saying, I get, I get it. You're now all things, and you've left me to be the garbage of the world. So be it for Christ's sake. And throughout the New Testament, you'll see that he's, he's treated like God one moment and garbage the next. Throughout the letters of Corinthians, he's constantly having to defend himself and his ministry among the people that he is serving. In chapter 9, uh, I'll read you a section. In chapter 9, he's going to make a long defense of his rights as an apostle. He'll say to them, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You hear what he's saying? He says, haven't I seen Jesus? Didn't I receive a call to be an apostle? Even if others don't treat me as an apostle, aren't you required to since I planted you? He'll go on to say, this is my defense to those who would examine me. 
Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife as do other apostles and the brother of our Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Or tends to a flock without getting some of the milk? We could keep going. But in 1 Corinthians, what Paul is saying is he's defending himself, particularly in this passage, as it terms, in terms of finances. Now, if you know the context of 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't take a dime from the Corinthian church. And so he's got this long chapter defending his right to a paycheck, while all the while refraining from a paycheck. So you got to put the two together. Why is he defending his right to be paid when he's not being paid? And that's exactly the point. The Corinthians had such a perverted understanding of this whole thing that they figured if Paul was on their payroll, well, then he was their employee and they could direct his affairs to tell him what to do. That rather than him working for God and so working for them, that he was on their payroll. And to avoid that and to avoid them thinking that he was doing this for money, he purposely withdraws from taking any income from them. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 10, he'll actually tell them, do you know I was robbing other churches? Not literally. I was receiving support from other churches so that I wouldn't have to take a dime from you, so that I would never have to give up my boast that I'm doing this for free for the Lord. I was being supported by others so that you wouldn't be able to say this about me. He's planted this church any income that comes to that church came because of his work, and now he's defending his right before them. And you'll see it all throughout, it in all different manners. In 2 Corinthians, he'll say to them in chapter 6, you don't have to turn there now, but he'll say to them, basically, listen, our hearts are wide open to you. Why are your hearts so small to us? Think of a pastor saying that to his church. He's saying in 2 Corinthians 6, 11, we love you with such wide hearts, with such unrestraint. Why are you so restricted in your love for us? And he actually has to plead with this church, won't you open your heart to me? He'll have to say to the Corinthians, I get it. You have lots of different guides now, but you only have one father in Christ, and that's me. Why? Because he wants a title? No. But he wants them to remember that's what he's been like to this church. I've been like a dad among you, bearing children for God. And won't your heart open itself to me as a spiritual leader for you? So what I want us to hear is if on the one hand we can treat pastors like celebrities, I know all too well that we can also swing to the other side and treat them with contempt. We can disrespect them. We can pay them as little as possible. I remember the, the sort of motto growing up in the churches I was a part of was, pray, pay these guys as little as possible. Make them do as much as possible. And if they're worn out and tired, they're like batteries. We can just get a new one in a few years, right? What, what is the heart of a church to its leaders? And the scriptures would caution us going from one extreme to the other. They're not celebrities to be worshipped, but they're also not to be treated with contempt. So then how would the scriptures call us to relate to those whom God has placed in authority over us? <coughs> I just want to read for you a string of verses and allow you to hear God's word, and then we'll be done with our time together. How would you 
be called by the scriptures to treat those whom God has called in leadership over you. Hebrews 13, verse 7, it's the passage Kurt read for us. And then again in verse 17 and 18, listen to this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Hear it again. Remember your leaders, especially those who spoke God's word to you. And consider their way of life and their outcome of faith and imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, 17 and 18. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Hebrews is saying, listen, your pastors are those that have to give an account for your souls to God. If you're a dad here and you think of the weight of thinking that on the last day, God will call you to give an account for your family, consider also that the pastors are, given, are to give an account for God's family, the church. They're to give an account for the souls of their small flock and the flock that God has entrusted to their care. And so since that is a weighty call, Hebrews would say, don't make their work groaning. Make it a joy because otherwise it would be of no advantage to you. So obey your leaders and submit to them and pray for them. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17 and 18, hear this. Let the elders or pastors who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. 1 Timothy is saying, listen, when you have elders who lead the church well, especially if they labor in preaching and teaching, you want to give them double honor. And just to clarify what that means, he, he uses the analogy of the oxen. When an oxen is treading the grain, you don't muzzle its mouth. You let him eat of his work. And so the scriptures are going to say, you compensate these men and take care of them and their families well as a means of double honor. I'll read you one more. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hear it again. We ask you, brothers, who's Paul talking to? This is not a corporation. This is not a business. A family of brothers who have been adopted by God. He's saying, brothers, respect those who labor. The word there is for toil and, and break a sweat for your sake and who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. That's the hard work of heart work for you, that there are pastors in your life calling out sin and sitting you down and pointing out sin in your life. And when they do that, esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So celebrity-like worship, no. Garbage-like contempt, no. But these words say, remember, obey, Submit, respect, honor, esteem, love, pray. That's the disposition of our heart to those whom God has called to lead over us. That's the attitude, and those are good words. Remember, obey, submit, respect, honor, esteem, love, pray. 
All right, I wanna give you two words of application and then we'll be done to hopefully put some meat to some of this. One, I'd ask you to examine your heart. If you're here at Seven Mile Road, how are you doing? If you're a part of another church, how are you doing? How are you doing when it comes to your attitude and actions towards those whom God has called to lead over you? Are there places you need to repent? Are there places you need to be humbled? Are there places that you need to rejoice because you're actually doing it? So seek the Lord and pray. The other thing I want to do is I want to encourage you. Again, I told you, this has been a weird week for me in thinking through what am I going to say in application. But as I've thought through this, one of the things that has kept coming to me is I am so grateful to God. If our nature by our nature, is that we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and we have this rebellious bent in our spirit. And our experience has taught us that authority can hurt, and we've learned by experience and sin to to rebel against authority. Then when that doesn't happen, it's the grace of God. A a two-year-old church, if that, it's, it's not just because we've got good personalities or, or enough things haven't happened. It's that the grace of God is rich here. And so when it is, I want to celebrate it. I don't want to pretend to be modest. I want to boast in the work of the Lord that I have received from you respect and encouragement and esteem and love and, and service. I have received from you my work is a joy and not a groaning. I labor in great joy and in gladness for how God has given you to me. So I rejoice in the grace of God. That that's happening with with any level of harmony here is to the grace of God. I can tell you, especially I want to say at our church, it is doubly hard because of how young I am. I get that. I, I, didn't, I used to not even tell people my age because when they heard I was 29, the comment I would always hear is, he's such a baby pastor. I'm not a baby, okay? But, but I have good scripture because I remember in 1 Timothy 4, Paul's talking to another young pastor and he'll say to them, let no one despise you for your youth, but set for the examples an example, set for the believers an example in conduct, in life, in faith, and in purity. And you've allowed me to do that. And my hope is that when we call another pastor here with you, I would treat them as these scriptures are calling us to be treated, right? That I would love and respect and esteem and submit to and obey and honor them for their labor, for their work. I have admonished literally some of you, sat you down, talked with you about sin, and you've received it from me. I have great joy in this work. I can tell you this this whole part about double honor and compensation. Let me just tell you, because you don't know, every conversation that's ever come up about my compensation has had one tone to it. Ajay, we want to pay you more, and me saying, no, I don't need it. And that's the way it's gone every single time. To boast, no. But just for you to hear, what other organization works that way? When you go to your jobs and talk about your paycheck, is it your boss fighting to give you more and you saying, no, thank you? But that's happening because of the grace of God. And then the one last thing I would call you to is one of the words we said is pray. And as I've thought through this and prayed through this, this is the word I would ask you to think through. Because I want to ask you, Seven Mile Road, are you praying for me? 
as your pastor, as the one that God has called you in this season to lead over you, to exercise authority over you, the one who is going to give an account for your souls, are you praying for me? Are you praying? Is someone at this week praying, God, it's Tuesday. Jay's probably sitting over the scriptures, looking through some books. Would you aid him in his study so that he could preach God's word rightly to us? Because if you bless him, we will be blessed. Would you keep him from error? Would you make sure that he handles the word with truth? Would you not let him say what men want to hear, but what God says in his word? Are you praying for me? Right? Are you praying, God, would you be with him in his marriage? Would you be with him as he parents his children? Because we know the scriptures say that before a man manages the household of God, he needs to manage his own household well. So would you give Ajay all the grace? Would you be with Shainu and Hannah and Micah this week so that their flock would be right as he seeks to lead this flock? Are you praying, God, keep him far away from sin? Do not lead him into temptation, but deliver him from evil. For we know that our enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Would you help him to resist the devil that the devil might flee from him? Would you let him be above reproach and of godly character and not disqualify himself from ministry for yet another week? Would you hold him by grace for one more week? Are you praying, God, give him wisdom as he leads? If anyone lacks wisdom, James 1.5, he is to seek God who gives generously to all without finding fault. So God, give him wisdom to lead. Are you praying, God, give us other men? Because we know that the scriptures call for a plurality of men. And so God, begin working on the heart of someone in our church that you would begin to raise up other godly men so that in some time we'd have a team of godly pastors leading this church. So I'd ask you, I'd encourage you with great gratitude and ask you at the same time to ask your heart, where am I doing with all of this? Am I praying for and, and responding to those that God has put in authority over me? All right, let us pray now to Jesus, our great pastor, the senior shepherd over our church and every church. Amen.